thank you for listening to this message brought to you by Living Word Church. We trust that as you hear the Word of God preached, you'll be encouraged and equipped to love God and do His will. If you're looking for a church home, please feel free to visit our Sunday morning worship service at 10 a.m. or visit our website at www.livingwordchurch.cc. And now for our message. All right, good morning. Ah, there you go. I can even hear me on this one. Well, I hope everyone has had a great Christmas um, this, past, this past week. And, I, you know, I've, we had a great one. We were still celebrating the Christmas gift of, of, our, of our pup. And, um, and then the Lord showed up in a really cool way and blessed us with even a, another van, which is a huge thing. And um, our guys has been, you know, so good. I found myself just completely captivated and you know it was just a leaky eye I won't I won't say it was any crime but it was a leaky eye as I was just thinking about God's goodness running after me you know I so don't deserve it often I don't deserve his goodness I don't deserve his grace I don't deserve his mercy yet he still pursues me with his love with his goodness isn't that just such an amazing and amazing thing and I just my eye just couldn't take it, and it just started to leak, and I was trying to get it under control before I came up here. Um, but we're going to continue on in our series uh, entitled Fulfilled, uh, and we've been looking, uh, starting back with the, with the birth narrative, um, and we're going to continue on um, through Easter, just looking at uh, how Luke tells the story of Jesus. And so on this week, we are in Luke chapter 3, and that's kind of where we're going to get started. But, you know, I can't help but think about, you know, this idea of looking forward to 2020. I mean, we are, what is it, Wednesday, I think it is? Um, Just Wednesday as we're looking into a new year. And some people make a big deal of a new year, and some people don't, because some people, you know, make New Year's resolutions, and then they never, ever last past, like, February. And so you kind of have this, like, great idea of this, of this kind of fresh start or whatever it might be, and, and you've kind of felt yourself time and time, atta- time and time again, maybe just kind of being disappointed. Um, but I want us to pray this morning. As we pray for the word that God wants to bring to us this morning, I want us to also pray that as we stand here just days away from a new year, that we would truly, as, as Dave said, you know, we just wanted to make room just to pray, to say, God, what is it that you want to do afresh and anew in me? And some of you may have already received them. I just want to remind you, and I'll try to remember to remind you at the end. But last year, um, we've done this now the last couple of years, but last year we wrote um, kind of these um, just kind of prayer requests or prayer outlooks for the year ahead. So it was at the beginning of last year that we handed out a note card and an envelope and you got a chance to write kind of your kind of prayer hopes, prayer dreams or or areas where you would hope to see yourself grow. And you got a chance to write it down and seal it and we collected them uh, and then we hand them back a year later so you can look at them and say, wow, God, you really were faithful. You really did show up. Or maybe it's something that you just say, I just got to continue to pray into that. Um, But these will be, if you did not receive them from the ushers as you were coming in, they were trying to find people as best they could. But if you did not, they are going to be out on the table, uh, out in the back 
of the sanctuary here uh, upon our exit. And so you can definitely go there uh, and get them. And we'll have them out um, for the next several weeks. You know, hopefully that everyone will get a chance to get those. But it's just a great way just to see this was our hope and expectation for the Lord and to see where God has come through. Sometimes we just need a visual. We know he's there. We know he's good. Um, And sometimes it just helps to have that little reminder of, wow, God, you really showed up in an amazing way this year. I don't even remember what I wrote, and I haven't opened my head, so I'm kind of excited about it because I'm like, I don't even know what I was reaching to God for. But whatever it was in that moment, um, from where I stand now, I say God has shown up. I already know it. So let's pray for this word this morning, um, and then we're just going to quickly dive in. So, Lord God, we just thank you again for your word, God. I just pray that, um, Lord God, that I might decrease and you might increase so that your church might grow and reflect you more and more. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in Luke chapter 3, and I just want to read through uh, verses 1 through 20. So we're just going to read through it together, um, and then I am going to make just three points Um, this morning uh, that I think are going to kind of help us in our preparation as we think about this new year, as we think about the week of prayer and fasting that is going to come, that we'll give you more information about as we we go ahead. But but there's kind of some groundwork that I feel needs to be laid. And I feel like this scripture, this these uh, passages that we're going to read today are going to help us to begin to lay the groundwork um, on just making our hearts ready for what the Lord wants to do. So just starting in verse one, I'll just read through um, and then we'll, we'll look at a few things together. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Iteria and Triconitus, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight the path for him. Every valley shall be filled in. Every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight. The rough way smooth. And all the people will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The ax is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with one who has none and anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing forks in his hand to clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. 
And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. But then John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done. Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. There's a lot there, folks, in those 20 verses. And obviously we can't take, um, you know, a couple hours to unpack it all. Uh, But there are just three points um, that I do want us to to look at. And again, this is really all under this title of preparing the way. And this is such an applicable title for me in life as I am, you know, as where I work, we are building a new building. So we uh, have had a K through five school and now our 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 oldest group of students are now in the fifth grade. And so next fall, we'll have our first group of sixth graders, which means now we need space for junior high. And so in a space next to our building that we were able to buy, a couple of lots used to be this old abandoned apartment building. And how many of you know it's really hard to build a new building on top of an old one? Yeah, I mean, you don't have to be much of a of a builder or an engineer to realize that if you try to build a nice new structure on top of an old structure, it probably won't work out too well. So we kind of had to do some pretty significant demolition work to make way, to prepare the way for this new junior high building that is going to go up, that our students will be able to go into and learn and be educated and be all be made to be all they can be in the dream, big dreams, and to think that, yes, I can. I mean, it's going to be something pretty, pretty special. I'm glad we didn't try to put it inside that old apartment building where all the windows knocked out and rats the size of horses, and you know how that goes. It really would have been a, a pretty sad state of affairs. Yet somehow, some way, sometimes we sometimes believe that it's easier to try to build on the old as opposed to making way for the new. Sometimes we don't do the work of cleaning out the closet before we start trying to put new stuff into the closet. Sometimes we struggle with, instead of, you know, like my mom used to tell me as a kid, the best way to make a bed is you got to take everything off and start over. And I'm like, no, you don't. You just throw the blanket on top of the sheet that's all messed up under there and nobody can see it, right? I mean, that's the easier way to do it. But there's something here this morning that we learned through the life of John the Baptist about what it means and what it takes to prepare the way for the Lord to do what the Lord is going to do. And as we stand here in this part of 2019, looking ahead into a fresh new year, I think from this lesson, we're going to learn. I'm going to give you the punchline now, and then we'll work our way backwards. But we're going to learn that God wants to clean some stuff out in our own lives. He wants to do some demolition in our own lives so that when he wants to build and what he wants to build that's new and that's fresh and that's vibrant in our lives, we're not trying to build it on top of junk and thinking it's going to stand. So we got a lot of work to do to get to there and we need to do this quickly. So here we go. 
You're going to have to follow me fast because I'm going to speak fast. Again, if you speak out to me and let me know we're on the right track, that you're trekking with me, I can keep moving. If it stays silent, then I got to repeat myself over and over and over again until you get it. And I know no one wants that. So there you go. Let's go. It really does work. Point one, repent. It's a question mark there. That wasn't an accident. Christina's actually really good with keeping up with, the, with those things, and that wasn't an accident. That was intent. Why is this a big question? Repent? Well, we got to understand the times. We got to look at a little bit of the backstory of uh, John the Baptist in order to kind of understand. Now, we've talked about John the Baptist's birth just a few weeks ago. If you've been here and you've been following through our story in Luke, we talk about him in, in Luke chapter one. We talk about uh, his father, Zechariah, and his mom, Elizabeth. We talk about how uh, Zechariah didn't believe when the angel came to him and he was, he had to, he was kind of struck with silence. He couldn't, he couldn't speak after that for a, for a span of time and, and that whole thing. We know that story. But this story, or the, the, the man, John the Baptist, this is a fulfillment of prophecy that goes back some 700 plus years. Because he's first mentioned by Isaiah. And John, or Luke himself, quotes that scripture in Isaiah chapter uh, 40. He quotes it right here in verses 4 through 6. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in. Every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight. All the rough paths ways, all the rough ways smooth. And all people will see God's salvation. So there was going to be this voice coming out from the wilderness. And we see that in Isaiah. But then we also see him foretold and mentioned in Malachi. Right There's the prophet who says in, in chapter 3, verse 1, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. And then he mentions it again in chapter 4 of Malachi. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. So there's this fulfillment of this prophet who is to come in the New Testament that we now know as named as John the Baptist. And so this is years and years of this, this being foretold to people. It's like kind of, who is this going to be? And, and here he steps out onto the scene in Luke chapter 3. But not only was this a fulfillment both in the Old Testament and that has come to fruition in the New Testament. Um, but we know that the angel themselves, God himself gave uh, Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth the, the fulfillment or the prophecy that they will give birth to this boy and he will be a son. And he says in Luke chapter 1, 76 through 80, it says, and you, my child, this is Zechariah who is speaking after he has confirmed that, yes, his name will be John. And all of a sudden that silence it was kind of lifted from him and he was able to speak. And he says, and you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, just like Elijah. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death 
to guide our feet into the path of peace. And it says, and the, child, and the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. And all of this is, is extremely significant because then if we also understand a little bit more of the history, and maybe you care about history and maybe you don't, but from the book of Malachi to the starting of the Gospels, there was 400 years of silence. Meaning our scriptures there, we don't have any scriptures that capture anything that has happened between the words of Malachi that there is one who is coming until we get to the gospels where the one comes. And I'll tell you, it's a, I've been thinking about this, this thought, this, this idea of what would it look like or be like in my life if God went silent? Ever thought about it? I mean, in Amos chapter 8, the prophet, he, he spoke of this. He said, the days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land. He says, not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. It says people will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. Huh. To live in a world, to be in a place where God isn't speaking, in my humble estimation would be unbearable. Yet there was things that happened over this stretch of time. There was changes in political structures and powers over these years that have gone between the promise of this man who would come to prepare the way to the coming of Jesus or the actual coming of John the Baptist. We know that there's still history happens, still life happens, but there are no canonized scripture. There are no scriptures that we have written in God's word that cover that time. And so if there's nothing coming, there's been no words, there's been silence for such a long time, then the question only begs to, to, to kind of um, be answered, what then would the first thing you would say if you had to be silent for, let's say, four years? We can't even get our minds around 400 years. Obviously, none of us will ever live that long. Could you imagine being silent? For four years, what would be the first thing you would say? You ever thought about it? I actually never did until preparing for this. It never even crossed my mind. But I mean, there are. Could, could you imagine that here is here is God, and and he's he's been he's been putting this upper story has been in motion. We know the coming of Jesus was to come. We know this baby had been born. We know all of these fulfillments of these prophecies in the Old Testament are coming into fruition. And here is the one that has been foretold both in Isaiah and in Malachi. And he's coming and he's preparing the way. And he's going to bring this 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 whatever he's going to bring to to the people. And the first words that God gives to his people, and God has spoken before this. He, he spoke to Mary and Joseph. He spoke to Zechariah and Elizabeth through the angels. But this is 
his first word to the people. And he said this in verse 3. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance. Those were God's words to his people after years of this, what they call the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. His first words were repent. So the question is, (laughs) repent? Really? And the answer is point two. Yes, repent, period. There is no way to try to pretty this up or make this anything different than what it is that when this prophet comes who has come to prepare the way to tell people it's time to do some construct, some demolition in your life. It's time to make ready, to make way for the coming Messiah who, will, who is going to save us, who is going to be God with us, who's going to come to this earth to redeem us. And he's saying we got to make ourselves ready. We've got to repent. And repentance isn't a passive, it's, not a, it's no way a, a passive word. It's not a, it's not a, a passive thought. Because the idea of repenting, as you know, and, and we, we talk about it often because it's so crucial to who we are as believers, is this turning from our sin. It's not simply a, some prayer you pray, and, and there are some people who have been fooled into just thinking that as long as you kind of pray these certain words, you know, and, and you kind of get the ABC in order, that that is what repentance is. But repentance is a true turning. You are going this way away from God, and you literally turn back, and you go this way to him in whatever area of life that may be. And so John the Baptist is, there is nothing else that I can say to you that is of any value, but God has brought me specifically here to this place in this time in order to say simply this to you, that I am baptizing in repentance. People, we got to turn. Turn away from our sin. Turn towards God. I love how Luke even opens this entire chapter when he talks about the Caesar who's in charge and he talks about this Tetrarch, which is kind of this this kind of fourfold governing body where they kind of split up the kind of the, the area into these four regions and they have different governors over this region. He talked about Annas and Caiaphas, right, who are these high priests, none of which of these people are, very, are spoken very highly of here, but they are mentioned that this is a particular place and a particular time in history. John comes into this place. We know from what I read from Luke 180. It says he grew, almost like it said about Jesus, we said he grew in stature and in wisdom, and it was one other thing, in favor. Yes, 
Well, here it says, and the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. Can I just pause and just give everybody just a quick bonus word? I'm going to wrap up. I'm already on point two. I only got one more point, but this is a little bonus. So this is like 2B. There's a lot of amazing things that seem to happen in the wilderness. Anybody ever caught that? I mean, John the Baptist was completely raised in the wilderness. Jesus spent some difficult time, but time in the wilderness. I mean, people of Israel spent a ton of time in the wilderness. It took them a long time to get the point, but they finally kind of got it. I just want to give you this quick bonus. If you're in a wilderness right now, and not the current wilderness, right? When we picture wilderness today, we're picturing lush green trees and grass and babbling brooks. And I mean, we, we think the wilderness is great. Oh, it's a great place to go hiking and we spend time in the nature and that's beautiful. I love the wilderness. This was not that wilderness. This was the dry, arid kind of wilderness. The kind of wilderness where David had to hide out in caves because Saul was coming after him to kill him. The kind of wilderness where you really don't want to be. Yet it seems like in those dry, arid places, God tends to do some of his best work in his people, preparing them for the ministry that he has ahead of them. Then if we're to be like John or we're going to be like Jesus, we should look at our wilderness experience not as, God, why have you forsaken me? But God, what are you trying to teach me? What are you preparing me for? Because even the children of Israel, he didn't bring them into the wilderness to leave them there. It took them a long time. But what did he do? He still brought them out of the wilderness. John the Baptist, when it was his time, he was in the wilderness. I mean, this was a guy who shut himself off from the world. I mean, he was, we talk about him coming into this world during this time of, of the Caesar, you know, Roman rule and the, and the governors and, and the, the chief priests who, you know, were, were there, who were kind of not really following, but they were kind of in charge and he's kind of whatever, however that looked. And here's this guy who was completely separated from all of that, stayed out in the wilderness was prepared out in the wilderness. I mean, literally ate off the land. I mean, we know through other scriptures, he ate locusts and honey. Now, my kids and I do eat crickets. We do think the protein is really good, but we would not consider ourselves to have actually lived off of that. It's kind of a nice snack. But he lives off of locusts and honey, wore camel hair, which I don't know anything. Anybody ever had a camel hair coat? I don't know if that's comfortable, but I'm assuming not. Right. I mean, this this was a guy whose whole entire existence was about allowing himself to be prepared for what God was to have him do. He didn't get caught up in the politics in Jerusalem. That meant nothing to him. So he didn't have to worry about picking a side. He only had one side. And that was, I am called to prepare the way for the coming Messiah. He didn't have to battle with the chief priest about what they were or were not doing. His whole focus was, I am called to make way for the Messiah who is to come. Now, we can't all shut ourselves off from the world. And usually when we do that, our friends and family get really concerned and 
probably want to do an intervention, say it's not good to lock yourself out from the world. But I will say there is something to be said about shutting out some of the noise sometime so we can focus and say, God, what do you have me say? What do you have me do? Just a bonus. All right, that was 2B. Okay, got it? Let me go back and say it again then. Oh, okay, good. I, th- I thought we would be okay. Amen. All right, cool. Well, there you go. Thank you, Matthew, for that. Mateo was like, you're done, dude. Sit down. Out of the mouth of babes, as they say. But I love in Galatians um, chapter 4. I don't even know if I have that. Do I have that? It says this. But when the time set had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. This kind of goes back to what I was saying about the 400 years of silence. That it was all premeditated. That God knew exactly what he was doing. You in your desert experience right now, let me just tell you, when the time set has fully come, God's going to enter into that scene. And he's going to call you out of that desert. And he's going to say, now it's time for you to go forth. He does nothing by happenstance or accident, church. He does nothing that doesn't have a plan or a purpose. I always say that good or bad, there is not one wasted moment ever in our lives. Ever. That in everything, God has a plan and he's working something out. We don't always see it and we don't always know it, but I get a chance to share a lot of testimony with a lot of people, especially young people through my work, on all of the crazy mistakes that I've made in my life that God has brought me out of that I would have thought I never wanted to live through that for a million years, yet God brought me in it and he brought me through it so that now it could be a voice to our young people saying, you don't have to stay stuck where you are. How crazy is our God, you guys? And in a good way, sorry. But just how crazy is that? The very things that, that we just think, God, I just, I don't want to go through this. This is the most horrible, just desert experience ever. And then he uses that and he redeems that. And then there's someone that you're using that to encourage someone else. Saying, oh, you can make it. It's pretty amazing. So here we are. I'm going to bring this Bring the ship home here. Our first point was repent. Really, those were the first, God's first words to his people that that we have to turn. And then, yes, point three, it is repent. That is what we're called to do. That is what we are called even right now to, 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 you know, as we're looking through Luke chapter three in this time, as he's called the people of Israel to repent that Jesus is on his way. And I'll tell you what, something just about repentance is you cannot truly embrace and understand the beauty of grace and mercy until you realize what you have been forgiven of. I mean, repentance really sets the stage for grace and mercy because you're very aware of all of your shortcomings, of all of the things that deem you unworthy. So when Jesus comes and he takes our place, 
I'll tell you, there's a value about that that is that you get when you uh, recognize your sin. And you say, God, you really aren't going to hold this against me? Like, you really can forget that? I mean, there are things that go through my head all the time that I'm still trying to forget. And I look at God's word, and I'm like, really? You would, you would throw that as far as the east is from the west? You're not going to hold that against me? I'm not going to pay for this for the rest of my life? I don't understand it. Yet how beautiful that grace is. So what's point three? It is simply this. Repent. Exclamation point. That's the charge to us. And he says, and it's just a, it's just such a like, just a little quick statement that he made that I just think is so great. In verse 8, he says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Why were the people so, I mean, this guy comes out of the wilderness wearing camel's hair with a leather belt. I could only imagine looking pretty, I guess as you would look wearing camel's hair and a leather belt, I don't know. But here he comes and the people couldn't get enough of to the point where it talks about all the different people who came up to him who, as he's saying these words, like, I mean, he's not mincing words. He's not saying this in a, in a nice way. He's like, you brood of vipers. Like, you guys are like a, 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 just a pen of, of, of snakes. I mean, this is, there's nothing pretty coming out of his mouth yet. I mean, when you want to talk about the true, like, turn and burn type of a, of a message there, this was John the Baptist. He wasn't one that was trying to make it sound pretty or trying to give these fancy words. He was just like, repent and turn. He was like, because if you don't, you're going to be cut down and thrown into a fire. And these people couldn't get enough of this. And so they kept asking him. Different groups would come up and was like, well, then what should we do? And he, so these different people are like, how, how does this look in our lives? And he said this, when, when the tax collectors asked them or, or, or when the people asked me, he said, anyone who has two shirts, share what you have. Shared with one another. And I'm reminded of that in, in Acts when the Holy Spirit comes upon the church and what's the first thing that they began to do was sell everything they have and sell it to give to those who had need. But then the tax collectors came. They were wanting to be baptized in, in this baptism of repentance. And they said, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to. And then the soldiers asked them, what should we do? Don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. It means people wanted to know, how do we take this message of repentance? How do we take this message of turning and apply it? What does this look like in our lives? Church, repent. Now, what does that look like in your life? What area that God, even right now as I speak, that God is bringing to your mind where there's an area where you say, man, I have got, I don't want to carry this into 2020. I don't want to carry foul language into the, into the next year. So what does that look like? Then fill your head with the right words. 
I mean, I will tell you guys, when I was in, in high school and I used to listen to all kind of craziness I could, I could find, all the music that I loved was the craziest stuff on the planet, seemingly. And God had changed my life and I wanted to stop cussing and I couldn't. Yet I was still listening to my music every time I got. And finally, his reality hit. There is no way I'm going to turn towards God and have a mouth that glorifies him that's not spitting out cuss words if I keep putting it in my head. So the beautiful thing back then is I was actually able to just do a CD burning party and burn my CDs. I don't know how you do that on a machine that it's all just in your phone. It's a little bit easier back then. But I just remember that had to look like something. That had to mean something. That couldn't just be, God, I repent and I, and I don't want to speak this way anymore. And I want my lips to be vessels used by you to bring praises and, and blessing to people and not cursing and not pain and not just ignorant talk. And how does that look? And they said, well, you got to change what you're putting in if you ever expect to change what's coming out. What is that going to look like for you? Whatever area that is, anger, whatever it may be, ask the Lord, God, how would that look in my life? And then begin to prepare, even now, get prepared for God to do something new in you. Amen? This is part A of this message. I just want to finish with this last quote that says this. Genuine repentance must bear the seal of a corrected life. If we want to know if our repentance is real, if we want to know if we've taken John the Baptist's word to heart, then it has to bear the seal of a life that looks different. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. That was so helpful. Thank you. Really good. Andy and I will work together uh, regarding today because Andy wanted to just bring a, a clear, just resounding message from the life of John the Baptist and John the Baptist's message of repentance um, and how that affects us personally. And you've done that well. And uh, maybe you just need to take a minute, tap it out on your phone notes, maybe some things God's putting on your heart to repent from. Um, and don't lose that. Don't lose that. I know in so many ways, you know, like if you want to not look at bad things on your computer, you put software, some guard on there, or you, you, know, you talked about burning your CDs. And we, we put all these guards up to try to keep us from sin, and I'm reminded of the scripture in, that talks about guard your heart. You set a guard on your heart, right? You can't guard everything everywhere, but you can put a guard on your heart so that you don't let the garbage in. Don't let the sin in. Don't let it affect your heart because everything you do in life flows from your heart. So set that guard. Some of you need to hear that right now to set your guard. I want to talk just for three minutes about where we could do with repentance and preparation as a group, as a church. And so the three simple things You'll say, okay, I've heard those before. But I want you to take them to heart because when Andy talks and preaches about repentance personally, changing direction, I'm not going this direction anymore, I'm going to go this direction anymore, I want us to do that 
corporately as well, okay? And so I, I have three things that God was putting on my heart all week. And then when Andy and I kind of touched base on Friday, I was like, man, these are the things that are on my heart. He's like, oh, we compared notes, and this is how it turned out. The first issue of preparation for the coming year, or maybe it's repentance for you, is, is to confront this, this issue of individualism. There was an article written last week in, uh, it was called The Globe and the Mail. It's kind of the Canadian version of the New York Times. They talked about self-help books don't work. Self-help doesn't work. Because no matter how good you try to, or how hard you try to fix yourself, it never works unless you're in a healthy, nurturing environment. And that's just the world talking. That's sociologists. That's like a lifelong therapist guy writing an article. But from the church's standpoint, I would like us to give fresh thought and commitment towards this idea of biblical community, doing life together. Now, for some of you, you're great at it. Others of you, you haven't touched it with like a 10-foot pole. Community is hard when you pose, when you put up a false front. Community is easy when you just feel like loved and accepted and just people are around you. And it's healthy. And so I want to bring that to you to kind of eliminate this idea of extreme individualism. I'm not trying to undermine what Andy talked about. You need time to sit alone and think and work through. Absolutely. But we need to do life together. It's a very small percentage of the church that's in life share groups. It's under 50%. Even when you put together all the different groups, we tend to do life and think through life individually. And I'd like us to turn from that. Not only as it talks about personal corporate transformation, but particularly as it pertains to mission. Our work as a church is to make Christ known. And we need to do that together. And we're going to hear more about this as we go into the new year, but I believe there's a concentration of force, a concentration of ministry that we need to start doing as it pertains to the regions that the church represents, whether it's Lansing, or I started a group down in St. John, or maybe you've got this desire to start with a Munster, wherever. We need to work together due to a concentration of ministry so that we can have maximum impact in terms of mission, not only getting through our problems together, Okay. Number two, I just did three minutes on the first one. I'm a liar. Number two, I want, I want to ask you to have a fresh openness to the Holy Spirit. There is way too much of life that we spend in our own strength. And it doesn't honor God, and it doesn't bless you, and it doesn't get the job done for the gospel. I will repeat what Paul said. I wish that all of you would speak in tongues. It's not a commandment. You don't have to. But Paul's like, why wouldn't you want to be baptized in the Holy Spirit? Don't get hung up on tongues right now. Why wouldn't you want to be filled with the Spirit of God and operate out of the strength of God's blessing and God's love instead of always just trying to work hard at things yourself to try to do better, do better, do better, be good? God wants you in the flow of the beauty of his Holy Spirit. And that requires repentance from self-reliance. It's not just, oh, yeah, that's really helpful. Thanks, God. No, it's repentance. Because to not do that is to rely on self. The last thing before we sing this last great song, Daniel, come on up with the team. Where are you at? Come on up, guys. Is this. It's a new level of generosity. 
Specifically, I want to talk about generosity of finance, but generally I mean a generosity of heart. It's part of the DNA of this church. Don't lose it. Do not lose it. Many of you, many of us have been generous to a fault. You've given everything away. Good for you. Keep it up. But I want you to specifically think about the generosity of finance into the church in 2020. Some of you are not walking in a revelation of giving. Where it talks about in Proverbs about, but honor the Lord with your wealth, with the very first fruits of all that you have, so that the Lord might come and cause your own barns to overflow. You're just not walking in that revelation. And there's no condemnation there. It's okay. But I'm encouraging you towards it. To find a freedom and a joy and a freshness and a fullness of financial generosity into what God's doing into the kingdom. It's your money. You'll give account. I'm not demanding it. I'm not trying to pry it out of your hands. I don't want it if you don't want to give it. The point is this, that we would repent from rationalization and the sense of, well, I kind of, you know, God doesn't need my money or I don't have enough money really anyways. All that you need to turn from and say, God, give me a heart of faith and generosity to release fresh finance into the church. And here's why I'm saying it. God has stirred us here. I'm talking about particularly the elders and our our wives about some really great, incredible things that we want to do in 2020 in the church. The first is a small, of which we we want to raise $10,000 to send ahead to Madrid so we can buy materials for the missions team in February. That's just like the first thing off the top of my head. But there's bigger things yet that God wants to do here that we need the finance to release into the church to see God kind of get us off the, the sandbar, so to speak, and get us sailing and moving in fresh directions. So those are my three things. I don't mean them to be somber, but I want them to be serious. And I believe as we release this kind of fresh faith and we repent from these things of individualism, of resisting of self, instead of letting the Holy Spirit being filled every day with the Holy Spirit. And this last bit of, of not being free and thriving in the grace of giving and generosity directly into the church. Um, if we resist that, we'll miss out. But if we, if we turn to those things with God's help, we're going to see great joy and celebration in this very room right here. Amen? Let's sing in honor of the Lord. Praise God.